Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcast. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends. And what they all have in common is they have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Henri. Well, Henry, uh, but he's now living in France, so it's Henri. So, Henri, if you can tell me where and when you were born, and if you can describe what it was like, where you grew up, the sort of schools you went to, and the, res- the education that you received. So, Henry, Henri, over to you. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh, so... I was born and raised, I grew up in New York City uh, for about 40 years ago now and uh, living in uh, Brooklyn and uh, spent most of my youth as a, you know, I guess what you would consider an inner city, inner city youth. And uh, from there, I, I haven't had much of a uh, adult life, if you will, because it was pretty sheltered. Because at the age of seventeen, I uh, I joined the U.S. Air Force, and actually, normally uh, it's it's kind of a funny story. You know, normally you have to be eighteen to join the military. But whoa, because, whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, 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 whoa! Stop! <laughs> right. What happened okay. to the school? <laughs> Pardon? So you were born and zipped straight to joining the Air Force. Let's step. Let's take oh, a couple of well, steps. Yeah, I, let's take a couple <laughs> of steps back. I mean, you you were born in, in New York, in Brooklyn. I mean, right. I don't know an awful lot about New York, actually. Um, so, I understand that Brooklyn's one of the largest um, counties or or provinces in in New York. With Queens, yeah, we we, Queens, we use the, Queens we use the, the British system, or I guess the English system. So we have boroughs. Okay, so so yeah. so um, Brooklyn is quite a big borough, right? I mean, I don't know how it is nowadays with Manhattan getting so many uh, uh, transplants, but traditionally speaking, Brooklyn is the dominant borough for. Uh, for residents, so usually you you live in Brooklyn, and then um, Manhattan, uh, which you know most people know as tourists, is where you work. So uh, typically you live in Brooklyn, commute to Manhattan to work, and then come back for you know dinner and sleep in Brooklyn, and you know the other outer boroughs. Yeah, so but Brooklyn so, is the biggest of those of the four outer outer boroughs. Yeah, so so Brooklyn was is that a fairly safe neighborhood? Is that where they did West Side Story? Is that the one? No, I think West Side Story was actually in Manhattan, no? All right. Um, well, well, I forget. I, mean, I, I could be wrong, but uh, I don't know. I, I remember watching it because we always had to watch it uh, <laughs> in school, as well as because, you know, being in, in, in New York, uh, the New York public, uh, New York City public uh, educational system uh, and Broadway being right there. We, you know, they always, uh, when we went on, we call them field trips to Broadway shows. So West Side Story was one of them. So I, I, I remember a lot of the, uh, the musicals, but the actual setting of which borough it was in, I don't quite remember, but oh. I, I want to say, you know, gun to my head. I want to say it's Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love going to live theater. Um, I mean, right. you must have had a great childhood being able to go to Broadway shows. 
I mean, I've been, I lived and worked in London for, for quite a few years, and I used to go up to, to, um, up to Shaftesbury Avenue and used to go to lots and lots of shows. So, yeah, I can, I can envy you on that one. But I've never been to Broadway. Well, I mean, you guys got the West End, right? In some yeah, in some yeah. respects, you guys rival Broadway. And I don't know what the debate is on that. I don't really want to jump into a minefield there. But I know the West End is... It's the best in the world. Aspect. I mean, we set the standard for other people to try and get up to. True. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's the birthplace of Shakespeare, so... Absolutely. Brush up your Shakespeare. <laughs> so, anyway, school... So you're in Brooklyn. Is, is, is Brooklyn a fairly safe neighborhood? Well, it's kind of uh, was it? not fair to call it one specific neighborhood because Brooklyn is so big. I, I mean, uh, like Brooklyn itself, the population is two and a half million. So, uh, and, and you have a lot of different, you know, I wouldn't call them, I guess you'd call them neighborhoods, but I would call them enclaves. Yeah. And I mean, nowadays it's, it's a very, it's very homogenous now with many, like I said, many transplants moving to New York city. But back when I was growing up in the eighties, uh, it was very much dominated by immigrant communities. So you would, you would either live in, you know, the Puerto Rican neighborhood or the Hasidic Jewish neighborhood or the Italian neighborhood or the Russian neighborhood. So it really kind of depended on where you were. So you know, another person in Brooklyn would have a completely different story than I would. I mean, I, I was I was sandwiched. Uh, um, I, actually, I have, I have a huge uh, guilt uh, trip complex because where I lived, I was sandwiched right in between the Italian neighborhood and the Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. So I have a lot of I have the, the Jewish guilt trip as well as the Italian <laughs> guilt trip on me. <laughs> of course, nowadays, everything has changed and. You know, there's a, there's a lot less uh, heterogeneity, if you will, of uh, immigrant communities. So yeah. I don't, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you if uh, I, I, you know, I doubt that the, I, I know for a fact that the Italian community is no longer there, um, or at least where I lived. But mm. uh, you know, things have moved around. I mean, even when you go to like tourists or nowadays, when they say, "Oh, I want to go visit in Little Italy," because I've seen you know one too many mafia films, <laughs> and uh, you know, literally. Is like you know a bastion of um, New York or Manhattan culture, but if you go to literally nowadays, it's no longer a neighborhood of several blocks. It's just basically, uh, you know, like two streets, if that, and then the rest yeah. is just consumed by Chinatown. So, All right. <laughs> so big Chinese yeah. population in Manhattan, then. Yeah, we're correct. <laughs> so the school. Tell tell me a little bit about your school. Well, I, I mean, there's not too much uh, to say about my uh school in new york again new york city public uh education you know they it's based on a district system i don't know if that makes any sense but basically uh wherever you live you're tied to a specific district your your home address and then you go to that school and uh the new york city edu public education is pretty homogenous and uh not only new york city but also new york state uh new york state it actually has its own uh, graduation uh, requirements that does not exist in the rest of the United States and it's called uh, regents requirements and so not only do you have to graduate by the federal standards 
uh, but you also have to graduate by the New York standards and you have to pass this thing called the Regents Examination. And that says, okay, you're awarded a diploma, you know, a high school diploma or what have you uh, from New York State. And that's a separate requirement. And, and then, of course, uh, being tied to these schools, there's also uh, schools for the uh, gifted, which I think they, they changed the name nowadays. And, you know, not having kids, I want to know uh, what, what they call them now. But back in the day, they used to call them Eagle and Magnet programs. So based on placement exams that you, uh, that you would take, you, would, you could go into these accelerated uh, programs uh, for that. And, um, and also there's the, the specialized high school system, which is, again, is another, uh, I'm sorry if I'm using a lot of American terminology here. So, uh, right. I guess the elementary American school is, is, I think you would call it primary school, school <laughs> uh, junior high, uh, I don't know if you call it intermediate or secondary. And then high school is what you would, well, I know the Germans would call it gymnasium. I don't know what the Brits call uh, high school. Um, but, but, I mean, you know, normally knowing... second, secondary school, and then you go to what they call sixth form, or, or you go to a college, and then and then from college, or, or from from sixth form, you'd either go to a college or you go to a university, depend on what you're looking at doing. So we, right, we, yeah. we start off. It reminds with, me of that. Uh, I think it's Monty Python skit because, as an American, my only experience with the UK is through Monty Python. But uh, I think in his all in old CDs, there was the thing about. Uh, uh, I know I'm butchering the uh, the the the, the, uh, the the bit, but it's like, uh, oh, what do you guys call you know suspenders versus bras? And then like there's a joke like, oh, suspenders are bras in the UK, and then bras are actually suspenders or something like that. But they're like making fun, they're poking fun of uh, American English, and now it's usually yeah. we 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 speak the same words but mean different things. Absolutely, <laughs> right. So, so. so, so, so the schooling wasn't too bad for you then. So, so you managed to, to scrape your way through, and at the age of seventeen, you're looking at joining the the U.S. Uh, Air Force. So, how did right that come uh, about? at uh, the Started Air Force Academy? Because the Air Force Academy is a uh, it's not only a military institution, but it's also uh, you know proper university. You know, you have to start. Uh, at the beginning of the school year. And of course, since I was born later in the year, I wasn't 18 at the time of when the initial school day would start, which normally is not a big issue, right? Because, you know, if you're, it's usually you start your first year of university on that, on, in your 18th year. And whether, whether you're born, you know, in January or yeah. October, it doesn't matter. You're, okay, you know, that's your 18th year, so you can go in. But legally speaking, so from the university standpoint, it's not a big deal. But from a legal standpoint, because the Air Force Academy, you're actually entering, you're, you're literally entering the military. Well, the date that you enter the academy is also the date that you're entering the military. And if that, and if by the, even though it was my 18th year, I was still 17 years old, which by law means I couldn't join. So my mom had to sign a permission slip to specifically, you know, dispensating or like waiving my right to, uh, you know, as a you know child being, you know, entering into a uh, military service because, you know, we, we learned our lesson from the days of the British Navy because what you guys 
would do. You would take some kids, bring them to the bar. Hey, hey kid, would you like some rum drinks? And then the kid would drink some rum and they pass out and sooner or later they're on the, you know, HMS victory. Like, congratulations, boy, you're in the Navy now. Did you enjoy your rum drinks? There's nothing wrong with a little bit of rum and there's nothing right. wrong with a little bit of press ganging. <laughs> all right, all right, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so you weren't quite press ganged. How mind you, having having said that, you joined at seventeen. We we have um, what we call um, junior soldiers in this country, and they start at sixteen, and they're actually wow. taken taken into it's, it's um, what we call Harrogate, which is a army apprentice college. Or Army Foundation. Right, I actually visited uh, Harrogate during some of my tour uh, when I was in working at NATO. Oh, right. So it's a lovely. It almost looks like uh, the the the, the uh, Hogwarts a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's from the American perspective. Obviously, I know I'm just yeah. saying, oh my god, how could you say that? But from the old, well, for me, old architecture, it looks very uh, you know prestigious, as I imagine. You know, yeah, Hogwarts I mean, is. Harrogate College is, is is a fairly new new college. Um, there are a couple of old bits to it, but the majority of it is is all new build stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So so kids start there at sixteen, uh, and they get paid to go there as well. So so they're earning what they're learning, uh, and they they bring them along and as leaders. So it's like a leadership course before they actually become eighteen when they go to their regiments. So it's, it's a foundation college rather than um, teaching them to be little war fighters. <laughs> it's teaching nice. them to be the leaders of, of the future, basically. And, and from there, we get an awful lot of NCOs, uh, junior NCOs, senior NCOs, that, that tend to go on to do a good career, whereas somebody coming in at sort of 17 into to man service or straight into to regular service doesn't get the same um, basic background or grounding. All right, okay. So so I guess the where you went to the 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 the, the college was the sort of grounding in in the Air Force. Is right, it? yeah. The the uh the Air Force Academy is yeah. You, you know, usually end. It's between the ages of eighteen and twenty-two, and you're called a cadet. Uh, it's not just the Air Force; like the Navy has the Naval Academy, the Army has what they call it the Military Academy because it's the very first one. Yeah. But each one, each service has its own equivalent academy. And uh, eighteen through twenty-two, so you know, prime university years. So you have the academic uh, curriculum of the academy, which is a standard curriculum that uh, you know accredited. Uh, just like any other university and then you know, on top of that in addition to that you also have your military regiment on top of that which yeah. is uh, um, kind of 50 50 during the academic year and then during the summer months it's pretty much 100 percent uh military curriculum okay and 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 yeah. do you actually get paid to go there and, and do that course and at the end of it, you Correct. come out. But then we have a saying, come out you know, we get paid for it, but then we pay it back a nickel at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of it, you come out as an officer, I guess. Correct, yes. So, so it's a bit like our Sandhurst or our um, Britannia Royal Naval College or Cranwell. 
Right, uh, um, right. Cranwell. Sorry, that's the one yeah. I was thinking of. Cranwell. Oh, Cran- talking about yeah, thinking Cran- of Hogwarts. Cranwell. Yeah, that's a very old camp, and that is a bit right. like Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah. So you managed to complete that and did then left there what twenty two as a a lieutenant or flight lieutenant. Correct. Uh, well, again, because of my age, it was twenty one. But yes, uh, I and then of course in the U.S. we call it second lieutenant. But yes, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Uh, and you know, joined the regular air force there. Uh, then, uh, what, what with me, my, uh, because of my eyes, I couldn't become a pilot. So they said, all right, well, you have a physics, de- physics degree, so you're going to become a physicist. And the U S air force is kind of unique from that perspective. It's the only service, at least that I know of that has military scientists. And I'm not just saying that as in, uh, any service as far as, mm-hmm. Uh, any country, but also any service as in not even the U.S. Navy or the U.S. Army or you know, Coast Guard, it's the Marine Corps, et cetera, that has a such thing as uh, scientists who are actually military, you know, frontline military officers. Because, again, a lot of, I mean, the, United, the U.S. Air Force is essentially built on its technological prowess and the, the need to have frontline officers uh, developing the technology that allows for air superiority, if you will, in our case, is is essential. So it's kind of a unique situation. Because usually when you think, oh, military scientists, they think of like, you know, Q from, you know, James Bond, where like you're a civilian attached (laughs) to a military organization where you have to... Jack Ryan, is it? Well, in the Air Force, it's actually, you actually have frontline officers uh, doing the R&D. Oh, that's fascinating. So graduated from... Uh, RAF College. What was your first draft or posting? What, what do you call it? Do you, are you on a draft or are you on a posting or an assignment? Yeah, assignment duty depends yeah. on who, who you who yeah. you're talking to, right? So that was at uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which is the headquarters of AFMC or Air Force Materiel Command, which is basically the largest command in the Air Force. And it's in charge of all research and development and acquisitions of, of you know, I'll just call it material, if you will, for as an easy way to phrase yeah. it, <laughs> all, all, all of that for the uh, U.S. Air Force. Wow. So that was my first posting there. And there I, I, I started off as a bench scientist uh, doing technology, you know, working on you know, improving new technologies. Uh, I started out with uh, night vision goggles and also... Uh, well, yeah, actually, even before then, I was working on the Airborne Laser Program, which I think now has since been canceled. Mm. But uh, well, again, no, I was no, a, I was a laser not, physicist, so my initial posting, they just they looked at my degree and said, "Okay, well, you're going to work on laser and optics uh, programs for the Air Force." Mm. Don't give away too many secrets, or she'll have to see a come knocking on your door. Like a word, young man. <laughs> right, exactly. Come, come this way with a hood over you. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I don't need I don't need to be Edward Snowden here. <laughs> <laughs> so, how long was your that um, posting for that draft assignment? Uh, so, usually our assignments go between two to three years. Uh, I was also getting my master's at that same time because the Air Force's master's uh, school, the Air Force Institute of Technology, AFIT, also exists at Wright Pat. So, my actually my first duty, I extended it to four years. So I could complete my master's in uh, electro optics. Wow! Did you pass uh, it for the yeah. first? 
Or did Pardon? you manage, did you pass it with a first, or did you just scrape through with a two-two? Well, I mean, well, the nice thing about graduate studies is that the grades don't really matter. It's more about doing the work. Uh, so the, the, we don't really have we didn't really have yeah. grades per se. Or I guess I guess we did have grades, but I don't even remember it because they're not really <laughs> material. <laughs> they, they don't count as long as as long as you get a pass at the end. You come up with yeah, as long as you do the work and you know contribute knowledge. <laughs> yeah. To our, to, yeah, the information and knowledge base you're you're good to go sounds like a lot of fun to me uh yeah it's i the, the, it's amazing that, that that's kind of like one of the things that i took away from my career particularly being in in r&d is that you know we like to talk about all the the power and potential of humanity and a lot of it is in dreams uh but of course in the, in the military you know we we work on obviously a lot of, you know, highly classified stuff. Yeah. And the reason why they're classified is because they're very future technology that may not uh, enter the civilian, uh, not only the civilian market, but even the civilian frame of mind for, yeah. you know, 20, 25 years. So we actually, in a, in a, in a weird sense, we kind of get to see what is out there in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the guys working, there's, there's the famous story about skunk works uh, back in the 70s of these scientists specifically working you know, in, in Lockheed Martin, talking about the, the genesis of the, of the stealth airplane, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously this was super, yeah. uh, I mean, now there's documentaries about it. So, of course, I'm not saying anything compromising. And you, anyone interested, I'd be, you know, I obviously could happy to lend some recommendation on some of these movies or, I mean, like they're documentaries, but in a movie format. But, yeah. you know, they talk about these, and it's incredible how these guys in the 70s were working on, uh, you know, stealth airframes and stealth aircraft. Yeah. And just, you know, the math that, that would be required to create stealth air, aircraft didn't really exist in academic papers per se at that time. Mm-hmm. So they were working on things that, as far as humanity was concerned, you know, didn't exist. And here they were, they were flying these aircraft and only later on did people see the uh, awesome in the literal sense or devastating effects of what a stealth aircraft could do. And, you know, being part of that community, you know, it's, it's really humbling because a lot of people say, oh yeah, humanity, we can do anything if we put our mind to it. And it's usually a lot of rah, rah, kum, you know, kumbaya, you know, a lot of cheerleading, things like that. But in the military, like, no, I actually see that. And I could you know, tangibly point to the fact that yes, humanity, when we put our uh, you know, heads together and, and more importantly, our hands together to do something, we actually can do a lot more than we can and we know. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that goes right across the board, wherever you are. Right. It's, it's just thinking outside the box most of the time to come up with, with something totally new. And it, and it doesn't, yeah. and, and it, it doesn't take a, a genius, but then it does. So <laughs> yeah, a lot of times it doesn't even take a genius. It just takes yeah. people with uh, imagination. Yeah. Cause I, I like to say that, you know, being smart versus, you know, well, I'll, I'll just call it, if we define smart as supposedly high IQ, right? So, yeah. uh, someone who is smart versus someone who's average, it's only really the difference between someone driving, you know, uh, I'm a big top gear fan. So I'll just say the difference between someone having a Dacia Sandero yeah. versus, uh, you know, a Bugatti Veyron. Right. Yeah. And so that the guy in the Bugatti is going to be able to drive super fast than the guy in the Dacia. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, 
if if the Bugatti is not taken out of the garage and to actually be driven yeah. somewhere, it's kind of useless. Whereas Dacia Sandero, you know, can, if you take it out all day, you know, all the time and move it, well, then that's actually more useful. So in in sense, intelligence is kind of like the same thing. Like, okay, it's great that you're smart. And that means you can do things a lot quicker and maybe a lot faster than most people. But at the end of the day, if you don't put your, you know, hands to it, or you don't apply yourself and actually do something that contributes to humanity, well, it's kind of a wasted opportunity. In that case, the person who is quote, you know, less smart than you, uh, is actually more productive and, you know, is, is a better human being for society. So in, intelligence only gets you so far. It's actually the application of the intelligence that's even more important. Absolutely. In that case, the more people you have working on something, irrespective of their intelligence levels, you can work on something, bang your heads together and eventually get to something. Yeah. I, I tend to have a little bit more common sense than uh, intelligence, I think. But well, there yeah, you go. You know, there's always the joke about the, you know, oh, what's the oxymoron? It really annoys me, but, you know, whatever, <laughs> we laugh it off. People always say the oxymoron is military intelligence. Yeah. But then when you actually are in military intelligence and you see that, okay, well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's amazing the, the work that people do in those, in those regards. Yeah. So four years, you've got uh, your, your master's. So what did you do next? Uh, then, you know, obviously I went on to my next assignment, working on different uh, projects uh, for the Department of Defense. Uh, and, and at this point, we were really well into the, we call it, well, back then it was called GWAT, the Global War on Terror. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of emphasis on on how to how to essentially win that war through you know, material means, you know, so with that, they worked on a lot of projects on figuring out how to accomplish the objectives set forth by the generals to, to actually win that war. And it's not, and at that point it was no longer a conventional war because if you notice the being, I mean, the, yeah. the time that it took us to actually do what I would say conventionally quote win in Iraq and Afghanistan was actually very short. And after that point, you know, we went to that whole nation building phase and the stabilization phase. And there you had a lot of asymmetric warfare yeah. uh, where you buy by, where you're not actually fighting uh, an, an opposing army, but individual Oh, well, from our perspective, bad state, you know, bad actors, yeah. right? You know, if so, you're on the other side, obviously so what, they're not a bad what actor. Sort of year was this? Pardon? What sort of year was this? When, oh, this when, was around the uh, 2009, 2010 timeframe. All right. So this is all post 9-11. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was at the academy when 9-11 actually happened. So oh, right. it was a, it was a shock. I mean, I remember it. Uh, you know, they always say, like, I guess the previous generation was said that everyone remembers where they were when they knew that, at least in America, it's everyone knows where they were when JFK got shot. Yeah. Well, for us, it's, uh, yeah, everyone yeah. knows where they were when uh, 9-11 happened. And like, I, I remember it crystal clear because uh, it was... It was it was on a Tuesday because on on Monday night you know there's this thing called Monday night football yeah. which uh, you know American pigskin uh, football which is obviously different than soccer and uh, my team the New York Giants were playing against the Baltimore Ravens and for us it was a big deal because last year in the, the previous year in 2000 there was the Super Bowl which is the uh, yeah I know, you know all about like the, the, the UEFA Champions League final match if you will for uh, for American football and there 
the Giants were playing against the Ravens and we lost. So this was going to be our revenge match where we were going to win. And then, of course, we lost and then everyone was giving me shit for it. Uh, so uh, so the next morning, you know, I was still in a bad mood because my team lost. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, at the academy, you know, because we all live together and everything, you know, you wake up and uh, the academic day starts at 7.15 which is in Colorado time, which is, so if it's 7.15 in Colorado, then that would be 9.15 in yeah. uh, uh, New York on the East, East Coast time. So I remember during this whole time, right before I was getting, you know, r- rushing to get ready for school, you know, I was, you know, taking a shower and everything like that, you know, as you do. And then, so when I came back from showers, getting ready to put my uniform on, people were giving me, you know, more shit, say, oh, it looks like your city sucks even more than before. <laughs> and I said, and I said, like, what are you talking about? It's like, your city's on fire. And I thought they were just joking. And then, of course, they didn't, they weren't like being mean and crass. They were just... We just, everyone, like, you know, when that initially happens, it was just like everyone else thought it was like a fire, right? Because the, 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 the mere aspect that uh, a plane could be flown into a building is, was just an alien concept back then to us. So no one even thought that. So we just thought, that, oh, there was a fire at the World Trade Center. And, you know, they were just giving me grief for that. And then, you know, obviously as the day progressed, we, we got more information from that and we realized, oh, wow, this is a, you know, where we're basically essentially at war almost at least at, at that day we thought we were going to war and th- there was this talk about how they were going to you know suspend the academy curriculum if you will and immediately commission us and get us out there but of course that died immediately you know after a couple of days because we realized it was it wasn't like you know the russians or the chinese were attacking us you know it wasn't like you know, russia was crossing the fold <laughs> the gap <laughs> well, well yeah well, that, well, it was actually... just a crazy day yeah, I was in Macedonia um, when that went off on uh, what we call Task Force Harvest, which was... Um, now, careful now, we have to call it North Macedonia, right? We don't want to upset the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, tell them about yeah. it. So so I, I was there on that Task Force Harvest and we were doing a weapons collection from the uh, National Liberation Army uh, of, sort of, effectively, Albanians. And right. I, we, <laughs> it's funny, we... My, I was with my team, and I was driving this. We had a little Deu Mets, which we could only get sort of best of us three in the car. Um, so we were parked outside Camp Able Entry, which is the American camp in Skopje. The, uh-huh. I was I was sat there just listening to the radio while the guys went into to the PX to do a bit of shopping, and it came over the radio that there's there's been an attack in New York and, a, and an aeroplane's flown into one of the World Trade Centers. So I shot into the right. camp, grabbed the guys, and we shot back to our camp, which was at um, the shoe factory where the headquarters was. And as we got back, they got the big televisions up uh, and we saw the second plane go into the, the Trade Center. And, um, and we had quite a few Americans working actually in the headquarters at the time. And the stuff that they were coming out was scary. They wanted to go and nuke the rest of the world. So yeah. that's that's where I was on the day. <laughs> so so it, it, it sort of goes along that you can remember where you were at the time. And that was quite, quite a day that unfolded. And, um, right. I mean, it was, it, was, it was crazy because after, I mean, you can read like the 9-11 commission report. So they talk about a lot of this stuff, yeah. but it was interesting that as soon as that happened, uh, like I said, everyone was in a panic and that's, uh, the, 
you know, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, and I think even the North Koreans, they all called uh, George Bush back then, or, you know, his administration basically saying, hey, look, you know, we weren't involved because everyone was scared, as you said, that the United States was going to, you know, drop some bombs on you know nukes if you will on, yeah. on someone so they were saying hey look we had nothing to do this we <laughs> sincerest the condolences and everything like that we're here to pro- provide any support you need because yeah it was scary because we didn't yeah. no one knew what the united states was going to do i mean even we in america didn't know what was mm-hmm. going to going to happen well, well the funny part about it is six months later or less than six months five months later i found myself flying into kabul <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> on, on my first tour. So January 2001, uh, 2002, I was flying into Kabul. Um, mm-hmm. We're doing a, uh, I'm on a C-17 doing a tactical air landing at night. I mean, the the, the, the captain came over and said, um, all the lights are going to go off on the aircraft and we're going to do a tactical landing. You'll feel, feel the plane being thrown about a bit. Um, we did, it was throwing it around like nobody's business and we hit the ground and, and came to a screeching halt and he backed up and, and uh, the, the doors opened at the back and we got off and it was, the whole place was dark and all we saw was a little tiny torchlight uh, of this, this air mover leading us right. into this this little darkened tent on the side of the, the, the runway uh, to give us a briefing and say, don't step off the hard standing because we haven't cleared the mines yet. And then they went into telling us all the nasty things that can bite and eat you. And I'm thinking, what have I done to myself this time? Yeah. <laughs> and then Those they took us, took us from there in the middle of the night. They threw us on the back of an, an Italian truck and they drove us through the city to, to where we were going to be holed up at the university building in, in, mm. in sort of in Kabul. And, uh, and we're driving sort of dead night, hardly anybody about, just little pockets of uh, Mujahideen stood around in fires thinking, what have I done? What have I done to myself? And, right. and in, in the in the cold uh, light of day, the following morning, it, it sort of turned into one of the best um, deployments I ever had. I had a, I had a fantastic time in, in Kabul in 2002. I, obviously, everyone's deployment story is uh, different, and, and you know, for every every story that, uh, like for example, that I'm about to share, you know, you have an opposite story of someone saying, you know, obviously having, you know, horrific uh, uh, experiences with uh, either death or maiming or you know whatnot. And obviously, I don't, I'm not here to like glamorize or you know glorify war or anything, but uh, you know. All we can give our anecdotes from our own experiences, if you will. Yeah. And in some sense, I mean, I agree with you that war is kind of, uh, it's, it's like relaxing almost in, in, in a weird, crazy way because you have your whole day and essentially your life planned out. You have just one task and everything else uh, is basically taken care of for you. You know, you don't have to come back home for chores or, you know, doing anything like that. It's basically, you know, you where do I have to report and then and, and and when and then you just do that and you don't you can basically turn your brain off for everything else. Mm-hmm. If you need food, they're going to give you the food. If you need uh, something else, they'll give you that. Everything's provided for you, and you're just there to do what you have to do. But otherwise, your your life is very, in, in a weird sense, it's it's very uh, uh, simple and yeah. And, and and actually, I mean that's a lot of you know what they say a lot is that there's the shock of veterans coming back. 
to the home front and then they can't really cope with it because they, they've lost that uh, all of a sudden because everything's more complex things have changed yeah. and uh, yeah, you know they're back in quote, control and they really can't handle it and it's kind of a jarring experience yeah I mean I, I can relate to that I mean on all the deployments I've ever done um, I, I, I've had a totally different mindset um, I go away from six months and I come back and within 10 minutes of walking in the house, it's like I've never been away. But that's down to my wife. I mean, I got back from one deployment. Um, I've been away for six months and, and I didn't get the R&R because we were so busy on the tour. Uh, I came back. I walked in the house. I had to go back outside again just to make sure I got the right house because I walked through the front door and everything had changed. <laughs> uh. <laughs> knew, knew everything. <laughs> Walls knocked down. <laughs> <laughs> and within 10 minutes, it'd been like I hadn't been away. Um, but I, I know other people that, that that have had a really easy tour come back and they've gone to pieces. And it yeah, affects everyone. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had some pretty, pretty horrendous tours, especially the last couple. All right. Um, but sure. Yeah, you, you, it depends on your mindset and how you treat it. I mean, it's a big boys' game in the military. and if if you're not prepared to go to war, then you're in the wrong job. And I think we're going to have a lot of issues in years to come with this um, wokery snowflake generation that aren't haven't got that resilience built into them that we we had. I mean, I'm I'm 63. I should be 64 come April, and I I I retired almost four years ago now um, at the age of 60. And I've, I've spent most of my career um, playing soldiers. And I've seen mm -hmm. a huge amount of stuff. But it, it, it's how you deal with it. And lots of people don't know how to deal with it. So you're in the academy in 9-11. You graduated with your, your, your master's degree. What do, you, what do you do after that? So where are we at? About 2008, 2009? Right, yeah. And sure, 2010, 2011. Yeah, and then, so again, I, I worked on various different you know, programs for uh, what's called technological development for different needs of the Air Force or the DOD, Department of Defense at large. Mm -hmm. And actually, I shouldn't just say DOD. But one of the fun, the interesting things is, uh, actually, you can also say MOD because the, U the UK has a special relationship where it's the only country that can actually engage in quote classified research yeah. uh, with the United States. I mean, obviously other countries, there are specific carved exemptions where uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying we don't do uh, classified research with other countries, but from a blanket point of view, uh, and again, even the blanket, of course, there's exceptions. But generally speaking, there's a there's a blanket uh, uh, relationship, bilateral relationship between the UK and the US where we we do classified research together. And as far as I know, the UK yeah. is the only country that we have that relationship with. So I not only was I doing technological development for the DOD, but I was also doing technological development with the MOD. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Malvern, for example. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the folks at Kinetic and DSTL. So no, uh, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great time there. I, I learned uh, I learned how to play darts there. So my first <laughs> my my first time going to uh, there because at, at that point we we were in Malvern but also in Salisbury. Yeah. Uh, 
And uh, because there, there was, a, I think that was during the time frame where they were moving some of their assets from Malvern down, down to Salisbury. And so we were in both places at both times. And I, I still remember, I think, I think the bar or the pub's name is uh, the, the Queen's Head. I think I think it's called in Salisbury, yeah. and uh, where they basically say, "Hey, uh, hey, you know," because you know we were all Yanks. That's what they call us. <laughs> all right, and so it's like, "Hey, you, you know, you want to well, learn like a proper game?" Because yeah. you know, we were like, drinking, and of course, there's nothing to do when you're at the pub other than darts. So it's like, "Okay, let's play, let's play darts." And of course, I got my ass handed to me, and it was like really bad. And then, and of course, you know, we were only there for a couple weeks at a time. So after that, I made it a point to myself to actually really learn darts, to, yeah, so that next time. I went back to Salisbury. We would, uh, uh, you know, I would play, and then of course I went back all the you know, nonchalance, like, oh yeah, let's totally play darts, and then I actually, you know, beat, you know, beat my uh, British uh, friends, and then they, uh, you know, they looked at me you know, like quite so surprised. And, uh, yeah, I love that. And I, I love watching darts too, especially on TV. With what's the guy's name? The guy who's like 180. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just yeah, I. I I love playing darts now. I even have my own custom darts with like Ooh. the retractable tip that yeah. you know prevents the you know the bounce outs. And uh, I even and I have the little uh, you know the the, uh, the flare protectors so that in case you Robin Hood the dart, it doesn't yeah. actually the you know hurt the dart <laughs> itself. So like I'm I'm really huge into darts now. Yeah, I, I I love the game. I I mean personally, I prefer cricket uh, over five hundred one. More, more so because I, I've learned it not as a con. I mean, despite what I just said in my story, I don't really enjoy the competitive aspect, but more the camaraderie. Yeah. And obviously, the uh, cricket uh, is is more of a camaraderie aspect. So it's better to when you have you know four to eight guys drinking together. It's it's easier and more fun to yeah. play cricket than it is to play five hundred one or yeah, I guess I should say X O one. Yeah, yeah, fair one. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not, that, I'm not but, much uh, of a dark player myself. Yeah, it's, it's funny too because uh, we also going to Salisbury was great because our Salisbury has a big rivalry with Amesbury. Yeah, yeah, and. And because uh, I because obviously they're not Premier League, right? I don't know like if they're second or third league. They're like really bottom tier. But uh, the, in the Amesbury were the Blues. So you got the Amesbury Blues, and Salisbury were the Salisbury Whites. So you had all the like these slogans like "Come on, you Whites," and then of course with the whole like yeah, you know, the racism aspect, it was kind of like <laughs> cheeky for us. It was like hilarious where they say "Yeah, come on, you Whites" and things like that, and like yes, and then you're kind of like you know giggling, laughing because you know Americans yeah. were all immature. But, uh, yeah, I, I still even have my my scarf, my Salisbury White's scarf that I, you know, I bought uh, oh, while I was there. So I'm a, I'm a big Salisbury fan. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on then, um, when did you leave yeah. the military? When did you uh, retire? I left it in 2015. Okay. There I did what it's called, we call it a soft landing into um, with a defense contractor. So basically, I did you oh, know right. the same job but earn more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah. Right, yeah, because that's uh, I love the military industrial complex. I suppose. I, the problem I have because um, I, I I left the military uh, first time after I finished uh, my my first stint, and and going out into Civil Street, I found it really really difficult dealing with civilians. They don't have a can do get it done attitude they 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 they'll just sit and mug something off if it was too hard or, or they didn't want to do it 
and, and I found it really difficult uh, originally when I when I first left, which is why I rejoined <laughs> a couple of years later, and and I was fortunate to be able to do a full second career. Civilian mindset, I mean, is is hard work at times. Civilians just don't know how to work properly. I don't well, know. I, whether, don't know. What yeah, you've it's like with, with the military, it's kind of easy in the sense that. There's always the higher goal of, you know, inspiration that you can lead to like, you know, know, saving the country, you know, God save the, you know, queen, God save the country. So you can always appeal to a higher power for the work that you're doing. And so either it's it's easy to inspire your subordinates, whereas, you know, it's kind of hard to say, hey, everyone, you know, the, you know, you know. The, the country's life is in the balance if we don't get our quarterly reports up by 0.2%. You know, it doesn't really work that way. So I think the challenge is yeah, when you enter civilian management from military is to find something, I wouldn't say as equally inspiring, but at least somewhat inspiring to the sense that it gets people to work towards a common goal. Yeah. And that, that's why, you know, there's a lot of criticism in business schools and that they, they take the easy way out and say, oh yeah, let's read all these military books and military theories and if you apply these things that the military like i like one of the things like oh i think there's this book called like 12 leadership principles by a navy seal or maybe, maybe it's like 10 or i don't know how many principles they have but you know it's a nice book and it's really great it talks about how this navy seal commander how he leads and it's really great but then like they they use they frame it as a business book and say oh if you use these navy seal uh principles for leadership you can lead your business team to great success and it's like well i mean yes and no because okay like the navy seal commander it's very easy to inspire your group and say hey we're like you know as we know from the uh, the, you know the news you know back in the day during the obama administration how the seals they you know they killed bin laden and uh you know that's one thing it's one thing to say hey we're gonna go out there in the middle of night and go kill bin laden or yeah. me, capture or kill Bin Laden, and then right, and it's another thing. Like I said, oh, we're going to go out there and you know, or, you know, make our stock uh, company stock rise two points. You know, it's not quite the same thing. So yeah, it's nice. It's a nice book to read, but doesn't necessarily uh, apply to your, you know, your subordinates, if you will, by you know, applying it directly. So yes, that is quite a challenge. So military military ethos doesn't necessarily spill over into civilian networks. Um, yeah, at because, least spade for a spade, you have to figure it. out a way to make it work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where, so you got to like, uh, you, you, the Italians say you got to work the dough. Yeah. So in the, in the military, you have this can-do, get-the-job-done attitude where they just don't instill it into them in, in civilian street, which is a shame, really. Yeah, I mean, I feel... I, I tend to have a... I, I try to have a positive aspect with... Yeah, with, with people I deal with, and I try to feel like as a leader, it's my responsibility to figure out something that will bring the team together towards a goal. Mm. So I, I feel that uh, humans are, are are essentially like pieces of string, and it's much easier to pull a bunch of pieces of string together to a specific point and try to push all of them. Yeah, yeah, so. So if you, if you can pull them towards a common goal, it's much, it's much easier to be a leader than it is to, you know, uh, push people. Mm. Absolutely. So 2015, you left the, the United States Air, Air Force. What rank were you when you left? Uh, captain. So that's, that's sort of about two or three runs up the ladder then. Right. Excellent. 
So what did you do once you'd left? Where did you go and what did you do? Yeah, so again, like I said, I was a defense contractor and uh, I worked on specific programs for the U.S. Air Force. And then eventually, as my you know, roles and responsibilities grew, I also worked on some projects for the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. And then I also did from there, I actually did some uh, you know, international business development, working on defense acquisition programs for both the uh, U.K. MOD as well as the uh, Australians, the Australian Navy particularly. Did you back then any, there was a big the Australian Navy was going through a big modernization program. Yeah, did you have so anything was, uh, to do with pardon? mugging the French off with them submarines? Oh uh, yeah. No. <laughs> well, yeah, the submarines that's that's, that's another actually I did work on for the US we worked on the submarines because I mean as you know right now there is the uh the, the US Navy is going through a replacement or modernization program for their ballistic missile submarines. Yeah. So there's uh, a lot of subcomponents there. So the defense uh, uh, industrial complex, if you will, is very active in that uh, because you know, obviously ballistic missile submarines are probably, other than aircraft carriers, are probably the most expensive and most complex uh, yeah. defense system there. So there's an opportunity for a lot of different defense companies to get in together to uh, you know, put their technology or equipment into a system. So, yeah. yeah, so the French weren't very happy with with the Brits taking on <laughs> and giving the Australians no. and well, well, actually, they weren't so. They were. They, he, uh, Macron, the the French president, he he actually didn't fault the Brits for that. I mean, to his credit, he said, "Hey, you know, the British they were doing what was in in their uh, best interest, just like any country would do." Yeah. He was more. He wasn't really angry with. Uh, you actually, you know, this is like the, the one time Macron wasn't angry <laughs> with, with the UK. He was always angry with, with everything else going on with Brexit and what have you, with yeah. fishing rights and stuff. But this one time, he actually wasn't angry with the UK. He was angry and he and said all his anger was really focused on Australia and the US. And it was more because, yeah. not because they did it, but because he didn't tell them. Yeah. Right, and for that you gotta, you kind of gotta, you know, give it to the man. It's like, okay, yeah. it's one thing to do something for your own country, but it's another thing to not tell your ally that. And that, that was just a huge diplomatic faux pas. It's like you yeah. can go take Macron to the side and say, or call him on the phone, yeah. as all state leaders do, and say, hey, listen, we're gonna make this announcement. It's gonna be embarrassing for you. I just wanted to give you the heads up. And we have a saying in the Air Force: if I'm going to enter a shitstorm, I want to know what direction to face. You know, because you don't want the shit in your face that's a that's common it. expression we say and yeah you know both biden and morrison kind of violated that with macron yeah. so it's funny enough yeah he didn't really have anything to say against the uk on that so it, it was funny mind <laughs> from, from a british perspective of course <laughs> sure old rivalries run deep absolutely on tom cordial and all that so brings us up to date then where where and what you're doing nowadays so nowadays I'm working in the uh, in the, in the technology startup technology scene in in Paris in France. Uh, There's actually when speaking of Macron, he when he got elected, he uh, he he made a special carve out of a of a visa ex- ex- exemption. I don't know if he did it specifically, but he announced he made a big show of it that hey, if you're an American scientist and you want to do you know, good, great scientific work in, in France, we're going to, you know, we'll open, we'll, we'll greet you with open arms and whatnot. 
Uh, but of course, with you know, French bureaucracy doesn't really quite work that way. But yeah. you know, the thought is nice. So <laughs> I, uh, you know, naively uh, said, "Oh yeah, I'm going to go do that," and uh, did that. So I like to say, you know, a hundred years ago, we had our artists and our and our authors yeah. come during you know, the uh, you know Les Années Folles uh, to to the Paris cafes to do you know write their books you know like Hemingway and whatnot yeah. to, you know write their books or do their art and now you have uh, entrepreneurs and, and you know tech guys doing the same thing yeah. you know a hundred years later <laughs> so I'm, I'm one of those uh, you know that wave of Americans trying to you know do their thing with uh in the, in the realm of technology and entrepreneurship so i'm working here in the startup scene no oh, brilliant in paris and are you enjoying it is it giving you enough of a challenge oh uh, yeah i mean it's, it's definitely a challenge working here in in europe uh for, especially with when you're talking about startups and technology innovation but, i mean i but i think that's exactly why he wanted americans to come over mm. here is because he realizes his I mean, it's not just for France because he kind of sees himself as the de facto, especially now with Merkel gone, he sees himself as the de facto leader of Europe or continental yeah. Europe. So, and he realized that there's a big innovation gap uh, between the United States and Europe and yeah. you know, the best way to get, uh, you know, bridge that gap is to bring Americans over here or at least entice Americans over here. So. Well, can't really fault him for that. Well, he needs to change his attitude slightly on because he wants the EU uh, language to be French. Well, it ain't, yeah. it's English. I, I, I always tell him, I always have a, when, when my French friends tell me about that, I say, hey, you know what? You're absolutely right. They're like, yeah, English, I say, English should not be the language of, of the European Union for all these reasons you say. You know, I say, I completely agree with you. What we should have, the EU should be, uh, have a, adopt its own language that's representative of all of Europe. Right. And yeah. specifically, because we can't amalgamate all the different languages together, let's take the most powerful countries in, in, in Europe. And I say, what are the most powerful countries in Europe? And they always obviously they always say, oh, it's France and Germany. I'm like, yeah, exactly. European Union, in a lot of sense, you know, much to the chagrin of some of the other countries, they say it's essentially it's a Franco-German alliance with yeah. the other countries, you know, in tow. So I'm like, all right, great. So let's see. Let's take. So I want to imagine I'm going to I want to think, you know, I'm spitballing here. I'm going to create my own language here what i'll do is because germany right now because back then merkel was in charge right so i'll say okay let's use the base of germany so let's use the base of uh, germanic grammatical in, you know infrastructure if you will and then with france we'll take the french words and put it on top of that german grammar and you know what <laughs> and then, and then just to just to appease the greeks a little bit we'll take some like really sophisticated like scientific and medical words and we'll sprinkle those into that language and it's like oh wait let me see oh yeah that language is english <laughs> so yeah so, so the whole idea that oh that english somehow is not a european language is completely preposterous to me and like english is not only from a commercial and just you know a reality standpoint that english now is the lingua franca it's actually a very you know continental European language because you've got or a very EU language because it's a German base with a French uh, you know yeah. filling. <laughs> you know you can you can thank uh, you know William the Conqueror as the French like to call him the William the Bastard yeah. you know yeah. for that right. <laughs> so good old Anglo-Saxon words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah, actually, it's funny because uh, one of the things that we had to do in in high school was read Beowulf. 
And, you know, we had the, you know, the English, you know, modern English yeah. versus the old English translation. And of course you can't even you know, uh, understand or read any of the things in the old English Beowulf. But then I bring it over to like my, you know, my Swedish or like, you know, Dutch friends yeah. and they, they kind of understand, Oh yeah, I know this. I can read this. <laughs> and it's just like, it's not fair. Like how the hell can you guys, like Beowulf is supposed to be like our, you know, the Anglosphere's pride and joy. Yeah. And we can't even like read our own thing. <laughs> Well, so, well, funny yeah, you say that. Yeah, English I, is a fascinating language. I, sure. I, I went to the old Vic once to see As You Like It, Shakespeare's As You Like It, and it was yeah. done in the actual language of Shakespeare. And I sat right. there and I could barely understand a word that they said. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually yeah, something I like to tease my, uh, my, my British friends. Yeah, I couldn't understand. What's that? I couldn't understand Shakespeare. Yeah, so. that's uh, look, there was this um thing about that, uh, and I like to tease my British friends on is that uh, you know, there's always the thing like the you know Brits obviously you know you guys like to make fun of our accent, and then of course you know we make fun of yours, and yeah. you know you know vice versa, and it's all good fun obviously. But a nice like jab I always like to put in is that if you actually uh, there's a dialect in, in uh, I think it's right in Virginia that uh, maintains the the old uh, queen, you know, well, I don't know if it's Queen's English back then, I guess King's English uh, um, accent structure. And that when you read Shakespeare in their accents, like everything, all, all the prose, like it rhymes, yeah. like everything always plays rhyme. Whereas if you read it in, you know, British English, obviously like say like it doesn't rhyme. So I like to say like, actually America, we have the old original English and it's you you guys are the ones that changed. It's kind of like what the Quebecois <laughs> do with the French. They say, Hey, no, like Quebecois, like we speak the true French and you French, yeah. you guys changed your language. <laughs> you know, we stayed true to the original. So yeah. Yeah. Okay, Henry. Yeah. I think yeah. I think we've had a really, really, really good session there. Yeah. Right. So, uh, if you're okay, I'll call out a day. All right. And, and we'll stop the recording there. So, thank you very much. No, likewise, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening, and look forward to the next one. Yeah.